Well, good morning to you. Such a thrilling opportunity to be here at this place. I sat where you sit uh, many, many times when I was a student here. Uh, thank you for the welcome, Dr. Dockery. So thankful for the leadership that you're giving to our school. I'm thankful for all of you because I look at you and I think about what God's gonna do with you and it just makes me excited. And um, uh, as, as someone who's an alumnus, I really did go to school here. Um, and uh, the evidence of that, I think that you can see, uh, is found not so much in the diplomas that are hanging on my wall, but are found instead uh, in the fact that um, a lot of people rubbed off on me while I was here. Uh, and so I think uh, the, things that, uh, the, the things that I do in person and online, the things that I do as a pastor, a husband, and as president of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, bear the mark of James Leo Garrett and Tommy Briscoe and uh, Lacoste Munn and uh, of Malcolm Yarnell, uh, some of the folks who are, are here even with us still uh, today. And also, uh, Karen uh, Bullock, who was my dissertation supervisor when I was here, and of David Dockery, who was not on the faculty here, at all while I was here, but my very first PhD seminar was from a book that he wrote with Timothy George. And so his fingerprint's on me as well. And I tell you, I thank God for my time at Southwestern Seminary uh, because God used it to teach me some things about ministry and to mature me and to prepare me uh, to go out and to, uh, and, to, and to love the people in my church and to, and to, and to be loved by them. And so uh, I hope God does that to you while you're here. And I'm thankful to be here to speak today at this moment in the semester where you're still optimistic uh, about where things are gonna go. Uh, you've not yet received uh, maybe much in the way of grades back and there's that hope that uh, things will turn out well in the end. And I'm sure that that's true. Uh, there is a certain element of eschatology to every semester uh, whenever you come on thinking that uh, in the end, uh, the heavens will open and uh, there will be the grade uh, that you were looking for all along. I invite you, we read earlier from 1 Peter and I'm gonna be preaching from 1 Peter and I hope that you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two. And we're gonna start reading in verse 13 in a moment through verse 17. Uh, I want you to know that the book of 1 Peter is decidedly eschatological, as is really the New Testament, decidedly eschatological. You cannot escape it in the book of 1 Peter. I heard someone say not long ago that the United States of America uh, used to be a society that was disposed positively toward uh, Christianity and evangelical Christianity, and that it went from that into a period of time when it was neutral, uh, not supportive of Christianity, but also not opposed, and that we've moved out of that into a culture in our country that is actively negative toward the gospel and toward the church and uh, toward our entire mission around the world. And to that I say, finally maybe we'll be able to understand the book of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter is written entirely, I think, on the subject matter of how Christians and churches should behave in the midst of a culture that is disposed against them. And there are so many different sermons about that that come out of this book. But 
Today, we'll take a look at something that the Bible says to us as servants of God about how we should conduct ourselves with regard to the government and the society around us as people who live in a culture that is disposed against who we are. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13. I hope you'll follow along. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What a poignant and forceful word from the Lord. I just want us to take a few moments to consider the truth that God gives us here. I want us to look at three characters that are in the story. That I know it's not a narrative passage of scripture. The uh, preaching people can take me to task after the sermon's over. But for now, just listen. Uh, three characters that appear in this passage of scripture for us to consider together. First of all, the government. Uh, in verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And if that were as far as the sentence went, then we could think that he was talking about uh, the Rotary Club or the Historical Society or Major League Baseball or any other thing that human beings had created. Although Major League Baseball, a touch of the divine, came into the creation of Major League Baseball uh, prior to these rule changes. But um, but uh, he he's clarifies to say whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. God knows some things about human government. And we find some of those things unpacked for us in the scripture that we're reading here today. God knows that human government involves uh, people taking authority over other people because he talks about the king as the one who is superior over all of the others. Uh, God knows that it involves delegation, the empowering of a lot of people, that there are governors who are sent by the emperor, by the king. And God knows why it is that government serves a useful function here on earth. Government has been ordained by God, we read in Romans 13. It exists as uh, someone, uh, an institution through which God, to whom all vengeance has been uh, allocated, God uses government as his agent, an avenger who does some of the righteous retribution for things that people do wrong. We see the same idea conveyed to us here in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says that governors are sent out by the emperor in order to punish wrongdoers, and also he says here to praise good doers, to praise those who are doing what is good, those who are doing 
what is right. That's the reason why government is a good thing to have. We all complain about government in some way or another. We complain about our taxes. We complain about why the police officer stopped us for speeding, but not the person who passed us five minutes ago. We complain about the state of our national politics. We complain about decisions made by the courts. We complain about government. But imagine for a moment what life would be like with no government. If the strongest person or the person best armed were always able to have the upper hand. If there were no one to make sure that a contractual agreement with you was honored by the other party. If there were no one to stipulate that there should be a speed limit or even a rule about which lane you should drive which direction in on the roads if there were no one to make sure that the elevator you get in has been inspected and works. Think about all of the ways that life would be different and worse if there were no government. If everyone who wanted justice had to take vigilante justice. Anarchy is no solution to anything. And so God has ordained government as good but imperfectly good. God gives us through government temporary, partial, imperfect justice as we await final, perfect, absolutely impeccably administered justice in the eschaton. God knows some things about government. And yet, even though God has this lofty dream for government, God has these amazing things he wants to accomplish with government, God's expectations of government are actually pretty low. You see that in this book. The, the, the king referred to here is Nero. He's the emperor who reportedly lit his gardens by dipping Christians in tar and setting them on fire on stakes to light his gardens. This is the person responsible for the death of the man writing this letter, talking about honoring the emperor. And it's not as though Peter's writing with rose-colored glasses. He says at the end of the letter that he's bringing greetings from the church who is in Babylon, which is not a compliment. But instead, he's saying that this place where he resides in Rome, the church in Rome, from where he's writing this letter, is a place that is the equivalent of an enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament. So God ordained government and gives us government, but in no way offers the warranty to you that government will do the right thing most of the time or that government will even do the right thing 
a fraction of the time. God nevertheless is saying that bad government provides some good things for us that we lack when it's missing. And so God, in spite of the fact that government fails to live up to the ideal that it should provide for us, God says, submit to it anyway. The police officer didn't pull over the guy who passed you. He imperfectly sought justice when he pulled you over. Submit to him anyway. Your taxes are too high compared to what you've heard about the rich guy down the street. And what he pays, and you feel like it's unjust and unfair, and indeed, that your money that you give to taxes might be going to pay for things you don't agree with, submit to them and pay your taxes anyway. You didn't vote for the guy who's in charge right now and would not vote for anyone like him Submit to him anyway. Peter never voted for Nero and never would have. And yet he submitted for the Lord's sake to the emperor, to Nero, to Pontius Pilate, to all of the people in the Roman government who, after all, held against their will the people of Israel and the homeland, the hometown where Peter had grown up. God knows about government and God's expectations for government are low. I just earlier, less than a week ago, uh, Dr. Doctor mentioned that I came to you from um, South Carolina, but prior to that, I spent several days at Washington, D.C. That's it. That's the sermon illustration. <laughs> that's in my mind as I, as I preach this, everything that's going on there. But really, it's a town full of people who many of them go there to accumulate personal power, but many others go there out of a desire to serve. Serve their country, serve their neighbors, serve their district, serve the cause of the law. Many of them serve, you have military people who serve risking their own life to protect you and your freedoms. It's just that the whole thing is tainted by sin. That's why it doesn't look the way it should. But God does not tell us to submit because he has high expectations. God tells us, even with what it is, for the Lord's sake, submit. So God knows what the government is like. God knows what your neighbors are like. Look what he says down in verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. He says a number of things about our neighbors who are around us, who are not believers. He refers to them later on as those who are Gentiles that, uh, that, that are acting in a way that's similar to those who are a Gentile. We're, we're living in such a way as to provide for them the cause of the gospel on display. He says about them, God says, I know what the world's like around you. I know that they're not in favor of what you're doing. He says about these people, first of all, he says that they're, they're ignorant. 
that there is an ignorance that applies to them. In other words, there are things that they don't know. Like the Mark Twain quote that says, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you're sure of that just ain't so. Including that quote, which a lot of people attribute to Mark Twain, which he never actually said that we can put anywhere. A lot of people know for certain that Mark Twain said that, and it's just really not so. One thing that's affecting your neighbors around you is that you know things that they don't know. Important things, decisive things, worldview shaping things that you know that they don't know. God has a solution for that problem. And I'll yield the balance of my time to Carl Bradford and he'll come and explain to you about God wants those of us who do know to help those who don't know. But in the meantime, we are surrounded by people who act the way they do because there are things they don't know about. But he says not only are they ignorant, he says also that they're foolish, that with the information they have, they don't do what they should do with it. That's that's God's description and expectation of society and the world apart from Christ. Their ignorance will someday be removed. In the last day, there'll be no uncertainty in hell about who was Lord, about what was the right way to go. And yet, even after the ignorance is gone, the foolishness will persist. In a stubborn rebellion against the sovereignty of God over the world. And so God knows about society and his expectations are low as he thinks about the world around us. Is this surprising? It shouldn't be. If God had high expectations for what could be done with government, if God had high expectations in what could be done with society, why would he have come? If government could achieve the righteousness of God, the Old Testament would have ended differently. In fact, I think we can read the Old Testament as a long-form journalistic essay explaining to us why perfecting the government by human effort will never succeed in accomplishing the righteousness of God. You have laws written by God, given to people selected by God, whose roles and procedures were given in detailed fashion by God in those books of the Bible that derailed your read the Bible through in a year plan when you were in youth group. Gosh, why so much detail? Why all of this case law? Because God was detailing everything for them. And yet, even at that, 
what was accomplished was to designate our profound need for something other than government. Our profound need for something other than a selective society. Our profound need for God to create what we read about prior to this passage, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession who, what we read at the beginning of this worship service, are people who have been born again by the great mercy of God. You see, God knows about the government and has low expectations. God knows about your neighbors and has low expectations. But God knows about you and has high expectations of you, of what can be accomplished through you. Read again through this passage. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, he's saying anything government does to praise what's being done rightly and to punish what's doing wrongly helps you accomplish what God sent you to do. You're here to do rightly. Why? Why does God have an interest in your behaving well? Why does God have an interest in your sanctification? So you can make sure you get to heaven? No. If my getting to heaven depended on my sanctification, I'd be home working on that instead of here preaching to you. Because I got a long way to go to be able to get there. Does God want you to behave well so you can get to heaven? No. God wants you to behave well so other people can get to heaven. He says that, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You should act as free men. So, so God expects you to behave in a way that is by your actions a rebuttal of the foolish, ignorance things that are done against the gospel. Two, God wants you to behave well, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of a world that is arrayed against you and is, and is negatively spun toward everything that you do. God wants you to behave well. Also, <coughs> excuse me, also, so that you can demonstrate what true liberty is, what freedom actually is. Act as free men. Two sentences later, Peter's going to make it perfectly clear that some of the people in this church were slaves. And yet he's telling people who were subjects of a tyrannical government some of whom he's telling people who were owned by another human being and forced into servitude. Peter is telling people like himself and Paul who were on a first name basis at all the best jails 
in all of Asia Minor, and not as somebody who went to visit other people in jail, but as people who were frequently in chains, frequently imprisoned, ultimately executed, Peter is saying to them, neither government, nor society, nor your boss, nor your professor can make you not free. Because your freedom does not arise out of your relationship with the government. Your freedom does not arise out of your relationship with your peers. Your freedom arises out of your relationship with Jesus. And nobody can take that away. We believe in the ultimate, absolute, unfettered liberty in matters of faith of everyone. Universal religious liberty. Not so that we will be able to go to church and worship God in freedom. People all over the world who do not enjoy religious liberty go to church every Sunday and worship God in freedom. Your forefathers hid themselves away in homes and estates, hid themselves away in bake shops and bookstores, and even while it was an offense against the crown to do so, they acted as free men and women, freed by the blood of Jesus, to go into their worship services week after week after week. And if they were caught, if they were arrested, if they were put in jail, people like John Bunyan sat there and wrote works of Christian truth that transformed the world to follow them. You can be free to follow Christ even with a government and a world that is negatively arrayed against you. Do you know why we have religious liberty? It's not that the government eventually decided to be magnanimous towards you. It's not that someone in charge once upon a time said, let's do something nice for everybody. Let's give them the freedom to worship. The reason why you have religious liberty is because of people like Anne Askew, Protestant dissenter in the reign of Henry VIII, who was put to the rack to try to compel her to disclose the names of other people in her congregation. And she would not. And so they burned her at the stake, but differently than others. They put a chair by the stake and tied her to the chair because on the rack they had done so much damage to her body that she could not stand, even tied to a pole. And when enough people like that come through, you realize that you might as well grant religious liberty because you can't change what God has done in the hearts of people who've been born again, no matter what laws you pass and no matter what punishments you try to inflict. God knows who you are 
and he is optimistic about you. His belief about you is that you will do amazing things and you will do it because of this last verse. You will do it because you will show honor to the king and to the people who are around you. But you will do something higher for your God and your fellow servants. You will love the brotherhood and you will fear God. And in doing so, we will become unstoppable for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be not seduced by schemes of men to use fleshly weapons to try to advance the spiritual gospel. Read the words of Peter and be good and strong and God will do mighty things through you. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and the power that's found therein. We rejoice today, Father. We rejoice knowing that every enemy has already been conquered. We rejoice today knowing that every institution is under your watchful eye. We rejoice today to know that you will use every bit of it, if necessary, against the will of potentates and peers. You will use every bit of it to advance the cause of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your power and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.